0: We're getting near that time in the the calendar school year where a lot of our um, college students graduating, have graduated. High school students are graduating and will continue to to move on to their uh, respective places. And it's one of the things that uh, I've done through the years is um, whoever's been been working in in youth ministry, we try and go to uh, some of the graduations as we can and we'll hear speeches and and they always begin, a lot of them begin with a quote from a famous person. So you may hear something like this from the great uh, doctor, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, uh, the ultimate measure of a man is not shown in times of comfort and convenience, but in times of, in times of uh, difficulty, in times of chaos, in times of confusion. Right, you guys hear, so he said something to that effect. I think the words were different. But he says, ultimately, he's saying the measure, the true measure of a person is not where they stand when everything is going well, but where they stand and how they act and how they react and how they respond when things are not going well. You'll hear this oftentimes. Maybe you'll hear this at a graduation speech that you go to. And as I heard that, I used to I used to think that was so poignant in the way that uh, only great martin luther king jr could say it it was so poetic and it was so passionate and i bought into it but the more i think about it and the more i live life um, i have to say that with all due respect to dr king um, i don't think he fully understands the ultimate measure of a man i know that that's again Um, to disagree with people as distinguished and as honorable as him um, leads us into dangerous places. But let me explain myself. Now, he said the ultimate measure of of a man is not where he stands in comfort and and, and convenience, but where he stands in times of challenge and, and in controversy. But where I beg to differ is that I think that's only half of the picture. Because, you see a lot of times we can rise to the challenge in times of adversity and we can forget the things that we learned in those moments during times of prosperity. Okay, So no one is really nodding your head yet. Yeah, so I'll have to flesh this out a little bit. What we're going to look at today, we began looking last week or a few weeks back about the story of King David, or before he became a king, he was just David. We saw him as a shepherd boy being anointed as king because he had the heart, even though he didn't have the art of a king, he had the heart, and God said, I'm going to choose him to be my king. We saw him through that heart of depending upon the Lord God being used to slay a giant. Ultimately, all these things pointing us forward to seeing the wonder of King Jesus. And then we saw last week um, his kindness shown to a crippled Uh, Mephibosheth, the son of his dear friend, Jonathan. What we've seen in David's life thus far is when his back has been against the wall, David has risen to the challenge. When he's just a shepherd boy, nobody gives him a chance. No one gives him a fighting chance. He rises up in faith in God. When he's confronted by a giant nine feet tall, he depends on the Lord God. He rises to the challenge and he becomes the victor for the people of God. We see him when he, we didn't didn't look into this, but if you read through the the, the places that we skipped, you see David being chased, run after, pursued by the king, King Saul, who six times attempts to take his life. And in those moments, David is clinging to God and he's standing firm when his back is against the wall, when all the, 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 the chips are down, he rises to the occasion. In times of adversity and hardship, David shows himself to be faithful. But the question is, is that the ultimate measure of a man, or is there another part to it? And this is where, again, I I beg to differ with Dr. King, is that's only half of the story, because what will David do Right, what will David do now that he's risen to the top? We saw last week he just he's sitting on top of the throne. Everything is peaceful in the kingdom. All of a sudden prosperity hits. People are praising him. They're saying he's doing a great job. They're 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 honoring him. <clears throat> he's become the great king and people are saying this is the reason why we asked for a king. And as peace reigns and peace rules over the kingdom of God's people, the question is how will David respond? When things are going well. And I'll see, and what I want to show you, and what we will see together, is that the ultimate measure of a man is not shown only when things are going bad, but when things are going well also. All right? 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11, we're going to read <clears throat> most of the chapter. We're going to um, skip a few verses that um, I just kind of summarized for us. But I'm going to read um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, To those who have grown up in church, this is a famous passage. To those who are are of the Jewish faith or Jewish tradition, this is kind of a a blip on the radar, something that they don't take much pride in. In fact, this is a dark spot in the history of Israel and especially in the life of King David. This is God's Word. In the spring, excuse me, at the time uh, when kings go off to war, David sent. Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. but David remained in Jerusalem one evening David got up from his bed walked around on the roof on the palace from the roof he saw a woman bathing woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her the man said isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. This is kind of a parenthetical. Before she had slept with him, she had purified herself from her uncleanness, presumably because she was having her menstrual cycle, meaning that she's fertile. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite, husband of Bathsheba. Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation. He ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Let's jump down to verse 25. This is verse 18. They start summarizing what happened, telling messengers, telling David what happened. Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord is God's Word. This is God's Word, even this dark, sordid, scandalous tale of how the greatest king in Israel fell into committing not one, not two, but three breaches and violations of the Ten Commandments, right? To covet, to commit adultery, and then to murder. So what happened? Could we not see this coming? think in all of life, Because life is tricky, and life is difficult, and life can be dangerous. In every aspect of life, there are warning signs that tell us that danger is ahead. When you were driving here on the way to church, on the way to this church building, the great majority of us came down this one road and this massive curve, and there's a yellow sign that says there's a nasty curve coming. There's flashing lights telling you to slow down because it's saying, if you don't heed our warnings, then bad things are going to happen. This happens in all of life. You ever grow up in an area where uh, you see snakes? In order to determine whether the snake is poisonous or not, you were taught a children's rhyme, weren't you? Red and black, right? Friend of Jack, red and yellow, kills a fellow, right? So red and black, right? It's okay. If it's red and yellow, you got to get rid of it. You got to get away from it. Same thing happens. You want to tell how the weather's going to be? There's a sailor's tale. It says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. There are all kinds of built-in warnings in this life that tell us that we need to be careful because if we don't heed the warnings, then there could be danger ahead. The story of David, the great king, is a warning, serves as a warning to us. And in his story, the true story, God's written word that tells us of David's fall into the abyss of just awful moral sin, failure. There are three warnings that we need to heed, that you and I need to heed in order to be protected from the danger that could potentially come. The first thing is he thought he was, he thought the rules didn't apply to him. He thought the rules didn't apply to him. Chapter 10 ends with the Israelites defeating in this uh, pretty simple open shut victory over the Ammonites. So at that point, the Ammonites are their worst enemies now. So they beat them and they've gone back home because it started to rain. So there's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the um, ancient arts of war. I don't really know. But there, there's certain, um, not only strategy, but there's protocol to war. When it's raining, because of unnecessary risk of life, you don't fight. And so there's a break in the war. And then in the springtime, when it stops raining, people go back out to war. This is what it says in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Okay, So immediately, if you stop there. Right? if you had to turn the page or if you're reading on your phone and the phone needed you to scroll up, if you read just that part, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David dot, 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 what would you expect to read? David went to war. Why? Because he's the king. But what does it say David does? The spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men. And it says at the end of that verse, but David remained in Jerusalem. David's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. For some reason, everybody's like, hey, it's time to go to war. And the king is supposed to lead him. This is what the king was put in power to do. This is what the king lived for. To go out and to fight battles with his people, to lead them, to inspire them, to take territory for the kingdom of God. But David says, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go. I'll send my people. I'll send Joab. I'll send the rest of the people. I'll send my mighty men out there, but not me. I'm not gonna go. They can risk their lives, they can sleep in tents, they can go into enemy territory, but not me. I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna stay in the comforts of the palace. He thought the rules didn't apply to him. You know, there was a time when David was different. There's a time when whatever he was supposed to be doing, he did. And he did it because he wanted to honor God. But here is the representative head of his people, the time when kings go off to war. David didn't go because he thought, you know what, I'm above that. Don't you hear the people calling my name? Don't you hear the people saying Saul slayed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands? Don't you hear? I am the man here. And I'm, I'm the I'm the baddest man in the in in Israel. I'm the king. I sit in the palace. Everybody worships me. Everyone bows down to me. I don't need to go because he thought that the rules didn't apply to him anymore. My I have a, a childhood uh, acquaintance. We grew up in church together, and he's become uh, he's become kind of a big shot, and he's opened up restaurants up north in some of the major cities uh, up in uh, the east coast of the United States and Canada. And um, one of the restaurants he opened, um, it just it's like a bar, right? It, it's it, it's like a bar. There's like ten or twelve seats in it, and um, a lot of times the line is out the door to wait in order to sit and eat at this restaurant. They don't take any reservations; it's first come, first serve. That's his that's his deal. And so one day. This is what some of his buddies um, were telling me. They said one day, uh, word got out that this restaurant was, was the bomb. And so President of the United States at the time, President Obama, wanted to eat at this place with his secret Service serviceman. So they called in. They said, we uh, would like to make a reservation. And the guy said, uh, we don't take reservations. He said, well, we're, we're, I'm the President of the United States. I'm calling on behalf of the President of the United States. <clears throat> and this guy, uh, either, it was either David or his friends, they said, you know what? Um, it doesn't matter who you are. We don't take reservations. He said, no matter who you are, right, no matter who you are, you're not above the law. Right? You're not above the law. Even though you're the most powerful man in the world, the rules still apply. That's what, that's what this guy was saying, the restaurant owner was saying to the president. Because when we think we're above the law, when we think the rules don't apply to us, we put ourselves in dangerous places, don't we? That's why the billionaire owner of a basketball team thinks he can get away making racist remarks about people and then he loses everything that he has. That's why in another time, in another day, the president of the United States thinks he can go sleep with an intern and get away with it. And he loses his reputation. It's why the NFL football player who thinks he's all that can get pulled over by a cop. And when the cop writes him a ticket, he says to him, do you know who I am? Because he thinks that the rules don't apply to him. David thought the rules no longer apply to me. I don't need to be at war. Everyone else, all the other kings need to be at war. But look at me. I'm the one. I'm the one who put the ish in Ish. I am the man. I don't need to be out there. Uh, He thought he was the man. And so when he was supposed to be at war, he was hanging out on the palace. And one evening, it's dusk, not nighttime, as we think of evening, one dusk, he goes out. He goes out on his balcony. He sees this woman taking a bath. It wouldn't have happened if he was where he was supposed to be. If he was doing the things that he was supposed to be doing, then this sordid tale of Twisted events doesn't end up happening. But he's not where he's supposed to be. Again, there was a time when David did everything that he could to be faithful to what he was supposed to do as the leader of his people. But in time, people started praising him. He started doing well. Military, political success ascended him, not only to the, to, to the kingship, but to the, just to the pantheon of rulers in that day. Everyone is talking about, oh, David is great. And they're saying all of these amazing things about you know, this can happen not only to kings of Israel, but it can happen to nations. At one point when our founding fathers founded, constituted the rules of this great land, they built it on the principles of scripture because they knew that they needed to build this land in accordance with the word of God. But when America became this great superpower, so we don't need God anymore. Let's take God out of our school. Let's take God out of this. Let's do these things. Let's go against the will of God. And then you see where we've come. It happens to South. It's happening in South Korea to those of us who have great pride in our South Korean heritage. After the before the war, we, our country was nothing rebuilt by. Supplies, resources given to us fed from America and other countries rose up through, through God's grace to become this great nation. Economic power, also spiritual power. But South Korea has become content in being known in that way. And materialism is sweeping through South Korea and Christianity is crumbling in that great nation. And the... At one point, everyone looked to South Korea and said, it's a great Christian nation. It's a great missionary nation. Now, what do they think of when they think of South Korea? K-pop, K-drama. And we're influenced by it. And the world is being influenced by it. Right? when we think that there's, there's danger signs all around that we've become too big for our britches, we don't need these things. It happens not only to nations, it happens to Churches. It happens to individuals. It happens to pastors. Happens to praise teams. Happens to Bible study teachers. Happens to house churches. When we think, you know what? People said we're doing a great job. And we start applauding ourselves. We start believing what people say. We start thinking the things that I used to do. I don't need to do those things anymore. I used to pray like crazy. I used to read the word of God like crazy every day. When we first started parents, we used parents, we used to do all that stuff. We used to fast for our kids. But now... People say, you're doing a great job. And so we stop doing those things. Listen, y'all, when we think we're above the law, when we think that the rules don't apply to us, we're moving into dangerous territory. Right? We move into dangerous territory. This is all of us. This is, this is to me. And I'm, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm preparing this message, I'm challenged, I'm convicted, I'm repenting of this in my life from so many ways, so many different ways. Right? David thought that he was above the law. He didn't think that the rules applied to him. And so he goes out and he finds this woman and he scopes her out. And there's no accountability for him. Why? Because the people who would stand up to David are the ones who are out fighting, doing what they're supposed to be doing. The mighty men of God, those who fought with him, those who stood up to him, those who confronted him, they're out doing what they're supposed to be doing. David is all by himself. The first sign of imminent danger, my friends, is when we think the rules don't apply to us. That applies to everybody else. It doesn't apply to me. It applies to all the other teachers, but not to me. It applies to all the other parents, but not to me. It applies to all the other kings, but it doesn't apply to me. There are places in your life where you're not where you're supposed to be. Because we often know when that situation arises. Maybe you're going to places you shouldn't be going. On the weekends. Places that your conscience is telling you I shouldn't be here. You're going places with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, with someone who's not even a girlfriend, boyfriend, with a a friend that you know you shouldn't be going. You're going to websites, websites, Following people on Twitter that you know you shouldn't be following. Because oftentimes that's the first step into danger right? when we're in places we shouldn't be, with people we shouldn't be with, because we think the rules don't apply to us anymore. Be careful, friends. Be careful. It happened to the greatest of men. The second thing, the second warning that we see here, not only that, but that his heart, his heart became hardened to the things that used to move him. Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. Man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So you you stop and you listen. And if you've been reading through uh, 2 Samuel then you kind of, may, your radar may go up. But David's like sitting on a roof. He sees this girl. She's beautiful. The, the Hebrew language says the woman was beautiful. And at the end of that, it says, very beautiful. This is who she is. Very beautiful. He goes and he says, who is this woman? And someone comes back, and, and the tone in which he says it, you can just kind of read into it. He says, are you kidding me? Don't you know this is Bathsheba? You know, this Bathsheba. look at what it says. He says, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. After hearing this, the first thing David ought to be, he ought to be like his, I was just, I, I just wondering who she was. I wasn't going to do anything with her. I, mean, I was just messing around. Simple question, who is she? I was just wondering. I mean, I wanted to send her congratulatory robe that she's so beautiful and she's naked or something like that, but who, why? Out of all the people, all the people in Israel, okay, she's an untouchable. Why? You look in 2 Samuel 23. Okay, check this. Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam? 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, right? Well, no, let me, let me preface it. We talked last week about David's table. These mighty men sat around the table. And all these mighty men of God, they're the ones who... When David was being chased by Saul, they were the ones who stood with him, giving him strength. They're the ones who, when David was being ridiculed and mocked, they stood up for him. They're the ones, there's this one point in, in 2 Samuel 23, it talks about the exploits. One of them killed 800 men. They, they did all of these, these, these mighty exploits, and they were loyal, fiercely loyal to David. They would lay down their lives. There's a time when David and his people are, are camped out there at war with the Philistines and the Philistine garrison is, is, heavily, is heavily guarded, and David says, "I just want a drink of water from that. Just, I just want a drink." He wasn't asking anyone, just said, "Oh, the waters of that place are just so delectable, and I just want some of the, that water." Just said it. And these three mighty men of God said, the king's wish, whispered wishes, become our command. So as they broke through, three men broke through the Philistine garrison. They brought water from that place and they brought it back to David. And David was so moved. He said, is this not the blood of my men who risked their lives for me? But how could I drink this? And as an offering to them, he poured it out before. This was this a was mighty man of God. Now it says that David finds out, they say, isn't this Eliam? Verse, uh, chapter 23, if you look in chapter 23. Verse 34, it's listing, well, verse 24, verse 24, 23, 24, among the 30 were Azahel, the brother of Joab, and on and on it goes, verse 34, uh, Eliphathet, son of this, and then Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Bathsheba is is the daughter of one of his 30 fierce, fighting, mighty men who surround his table. Second thing, son of Ahithophel, when you read read about who Ahithophel is in chapter 15, it says that Ahithophel is David's uh, primary counselor. Whenever David had a decision to be made, he would consult with him. Bathsheba is his granddaughter. That's two strikes, as if that's not enough. The servant goes on and he says, is this not Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and the wife at that point, you got to say, okay, my bad. I was just playing around, just messing around. we <laughs> are just kidding here. But he says, wife, and then he goes on. He says, the wife of who? Uriah the Hittite, another one of David's mighty men. So this is one of your 30 close friends, two of your 30. Think about your 30 closest friends, people who would lay down their lives for you. One of them, this is his wife. The other, this is his daughter. So what does David say? Verse 4, Then David sent messengers to get her. Has his heart become so callous and hardened to the conviction of God, to the Word of God, to his relationship with God, that without thinking, just objectifies this person and says bring her to me and they bring her he sleeps with her she comes back and says i'm pregnant dave is like i'm in a little bit of a pickle here <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of a jam here what am i going to do he's like i got to cover this up so what does he do He calls out into the wharf. He sends a messenger, says, "Bring bring back Bathsheba's husband. So the messenger comes back. Uriah comes back. He's been fighting. And David says, you've done a great job. You go home, get some sleep. Presumably go sleep with your wife. Get her pregnant or presumably get her pregnant. And then this child will be his. The cover will be complete. But Uriah comes back. And you know what? He, this is a dream of every man, isn't it? At the end of World War II, you've heard of this in America. you heard of the generations, Generation X, the millennial generation, the baby busters, the baby boomers. You know why the boomers were called the boomers, right? Because after World War II, all these fighting men came back to America. The the, the, the one thing they wanted to do after fighting in war, being with men all the time, they just wanted to be with their wives, be intimate with their wives. And so they were. And boom, babies. <laughs> the baby boom that's the baby boomer generation and so here is uriah he's been fighting been fighting been fighting and david says come on home have a night date night on me go sleep with your wife but he doesn't and the reason why he comes back this is what is what he says verse 11 the ark in israel and judah are staying intense and my master and my Lord's men are camped down the field. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? How could I do that? For for the love of God and for the love of my people, how could I do that? Everything that David did not love anymore. It says, for the love of God and for the love of people. But David says, Well, we gotta we gotta take drastic measures. So he gets Uriah drunk. Just kind of lower your inhibitions a little bit, get drunk, and then go and sleep with your wife. Same thing happens the second night, and I'm doing it. What you see here, it makes pains to, to say that Uriah is a Hittite. right? He's a foreigner who's been grafted into the people of God. Here's what you have. A drunk foreigner is more in love with God than the king over God's people. And David is cut to the heart and he's convicted. He cannot have this cognitive dissonance standing in front of him. A drunk Uriah is more honorable than a sober David. What a jerk. What does David do? So frustrated. Sends Uriah back with a a note. I mean, the note, he sends a note back with Uriah himself. This is how much he trusts him. Give it to the commander. Commander opens it and it says, kill Uriah. That's how loyal a man this guy is. They puts him on the front lines of battle. Uriah gets killed. The messengers come back. They're like, oh, David, he's, he's dead. And listen, listen to David's response in verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. What a lie. To encourage Joab, more like to save yourself. When he says that the sword devours one as well as the other, literally he's saying, oh, well, that happens to soldiers all the time. That's what he's saying. We all got to die sometime. That's what he's saying. And the man who at one point refused to kill his enemy At one point, who mourned over the death of the men who are seeking his very life, can turn a blind eye to the calculated, premeditated murder of one of his closest men. Has his heart become that callous to the things that at one point used to move him? How's your heart, friends? And how's your heart this morning? Did your heart become hardened to the things that used to move you? Things that used to convict you? Are you still convicted by those things, or do you think just once, not twice, just think once about sin? Just go on with it, thinking God's going to forgive me anyways. Did your heart become hardened and calloused to sin? No longer feel like when you used to come, you used to hear the word and say that that's God speaking to me. But no longer do you feel like that. Feel like you know what, my friend really needs to hear that. That guy, he really needs to hear this message. It's not for me anymore. The heart become hardened. You don't think that God is speaking. You don't hear when God's speaking to you anymore. Things that used to move you used to think about, about the cross and your heart would be moved. some point you used to cry. Sometimes your heart used to skip a beat when you heard the name of Jesus. But now your Christian life is all about showing up, looking good in front of people, keeping up appearances and have the approval of the right people. Your heart become hardened to the things that used to move you. You don't consider it a joy and a privilege to be involved in the work of God anymore, to serve the people of God, to love the church, to go to do the work of, uh, of God, to give to the sake of his kingdom. Now when people ask us, we say, do I have to do that? Maybe we won't say that to them, but we think that in our hearts. I have to go to another meeting? I have to do that? It's our heart become calloused and hardened to the things that used to move us as it did to David, comes up with this great scheme. Uriah gets killed. He marries Bathsheba. They have a kid. He thinks all is good. Few people hear about it. Maybe some people are patting him on the back, the servants who knew. Hey, good job, David. You did it. You're our hero. Verse 27 gives the ultimate assessment. The end, it says, but the thing David did, the thing David had done, displeased the Lord. At one point all David thought was just pleasing the Lord. But now even if it displeases God, as long as I get away with it, I'm okay. If your heart's getting hardened, friends, it's a warning. The danger's ahead. Like Heist Cube says, you gotta check yourself. Now check yourself. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror of God's word. You think you're above the law, your heart becoming hard. And the last thing, he used others for his gain. He used others for his own gain. You look look at what it says, if you go through this chapter, the word that constantly says is that David sent and David took. He sent and he took. And when you read in 1 Kings chapter 8, When the Israelites said, we want a king, through Samuel, God told the people of Israel, this is what the king is going to do. This is what your earthly king is going to do. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your your grain. He's going to take your food. He's going to take all of these things from you because that's the nature of earthly kings. And when they said, we still want a king, what they're getting in David is what they asked for. We want a king. And even though out of all the people that could have been king, this is the one that God approved of. He's still jacked up. And he still takes instead of gives. See, the reason why God gave a position and power and possessions to David is the same reason he gives these things to you and to me. Why? Why does God bless you with a position of influence? Why does God bless you with positions and affluence? Why? Why? not so that you could take from other people and exploit them, but so that you might give to other people, that you might serve, that you might use the voice that you have to be a voice to people who don't have it. That's why in God's kingdom and God's economy, you have those things. Your influence and your affluence have been given in order that you could bless other people, not so that you could take from other people. You know this, right? You there's an eyewitness news report that came out on the news two days ago. I think it was Channel 9 News here. This guy got pulled over by a cop, and he recorded the entire incident. And through that, an investigation was opened up on Orlando police. And it, it said, basically, this guy didn't do anything wrong but the cops because he wasn't listening to them or he wasn't doing what they told him to do. They said there's been this rash of Instances and over hundreds of instances where this new crime, this, this this crime has been written up on so many occasions, way more than, than before. It's called um, resisting arrest without violence. But basically what the Eyewitness News report is saying is that these police are using their power in order to bully the average citizen. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Makes you feel like you don't trust cops anymore, doesn't it? You feel like when you're in trouble, you don't go to, where do you go? Where do you go? Because when people use their power to harm and use it for themselves, it doesn't instill much confidence in us, does it? This is what David's doing. He's got all this power that God has given to him. But instead of using it to bless other people, he uses it to take. As we'll see next week, it's just, it's just terrible the injustice that David is is doling out upon Uriah, Bathsheba, and ultimately upon his people, and ultimately to God. And so David, instead of giving, instead of using his power to bless, instead of using his power to minister, uses it to manipulate for his own gain. So let's pause for a second. Let me ask you a question. If you're in ancient Israel, during this time, when David is your king, and word spreads right, that this is happening. How do you feel? Huh? Hurt? Okay. Betrayed? Right? Disappointed? Angry? Upset? Scared, maybe? Probably the same thing you feel when the heroes of your day fail you. It's the same feeling when kids who grew up watching Hannah Montana and just loving her as a role model—it's just beautiful young girl, Miley Cyrus, right? So many people putting their hope in her, and then for whatever reason, and for whatever reason, she falls off the deep end, and all of a sudden, people that used to say she's my favorite. There's this feeling of devastation and hurt. And we who are old, we, to whom she may not be a hero to us, we need to empathize and sympathize and pray for people like this, like Miley and others. There's a there's a there's a sense of just colossal devastation and, and disappointment. It's just, it's the feeling we get. Lance Armstrong in a sport riddled and checkered with cheaters. He's the one who stands up and says, I did not cheat. In fact, he's a cancer survivor. Live strong. Those braces all around. People are wearing these things. And then con- congressional reports. And then all of these things that, that come out that he too cheated. And all of a sudden, this great hero falls off of his pedestal. Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer, inspiring so many people. He's a family man. He's a great man, fiercely competitive only to find out that he had 12 mistresses on the side and all of a sudden the kingdom of tiger comes crumbling down. What happens when the people of Israel hear about the greatest king that they would know and his infidelity and his indiscretions, what happens? There's this feeling of just, what hope do we have? You see, that disappointment and that devastation, a guy named Rankin-Wilburn says, he says, that's the price we pay. That disappointment is the price we pay for having a hero, for believing in a hero, for trusting in a hero. And so in this essay, Rankin Wilburn writes, says, "Have we come to the era of the death of the hero? And who can we put our trust in now? The President of the United States sleeps with an intern. These great sports heroes, the sport of baseball. I love baseball, My one of my favorite sports. It was down. It was going down the tubes, and then a guy named Cal Ripken rises up. And then these guys, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, they resurrect the sport of baseball through their fight, their, their, their chase after the, the, the coveted home run title, only to find out that these saviors were the f- biggest failures, biggest of sinners, juicing up, taking steroids, even when they looked at a camera, looked at uh, con- Congress and said, looked at, at, at people, the investigators said, I've never touched performance-enhancing drugs ever before in my life. And so a lot of people stop hoping. They stop believing. Cynicism begins to flood the hearts and the minds of people, all those of us who've been disappointed by heroes. What's the point? I'll tell you what, in the ancient Near East, let me tell you something about ancient Near Eastern literature. It, was, it would be an utter travesty for anyone to lose hope in their heroes in those days. Therefore, you know what they would do? They would never, ever, ever write a bad thing about their king. In fact, if a writer, a chronicler wrote a bad thing about their king, their head would be chopped off. You don't talk bad about it because you don't want to, you don't want to distill confidence in your king. So what do they do? Even if they lost the war, they say, we won the war. It's like North Korean propaganda. Everything is great. Everyone is well-fed. Everything is going great. The way that you knew who won a war is when the boundary line shifted in nations. That's how you knew. It's not because you read the, the Chronicles, because you read the papers, because you read the things that people were writing. It was a travesty. You could write all the bad things you wanted about other kings of other nations, but not about your own king. So why? 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 When we read this and we say this is God's word, is the word of God different from all of the literature of the ancient Near East? Why? I'll tell you why, because if you've been following with us throughout this series, the book of Judges was written to show Israel, you need a king. First Samuel rolls around and they say the king is David. Second Samuel rolls around, first 10 chapters, David is the great king. By the time you get to chapter 11, where we've read, this is the beginning point, where the kings of Israel begin to fall big time. And the point of 2 Samuel is that you don't need a king like David. What's the point? The point is they need a king. The point is you need a king. The point is we need a king. But it's not David. It's not Saul. Who's the king? I hope after 28 weeks you're beginning to get this sense in which everything about Scripture is pointing us to Jesus because everything is about him. The heroes of the Bible are not David. It's not Solomon. It's not Saul. It's not Jacob. It's not, these are not the heroes. They will fail and they will fail miserably. The King is Jesus. He's the one that you need. He's the one that we need. He's the one that all of this is pointing to. You see, he didn't think he was above the law, even though he was. In fact, he was the one who put himself under the law. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, but to live it, to put myself under the law, to be the only person who's ever lived, to be able to fulfill everything that I was supposed to do. I'm not above the law. And he submitted himself under the law, and he did it perfectly. Why? Because his heart would not become hardened. He looked at the crowds, and it says he had compassion on them. He said they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He became the good shepherd who had laid down his life for his sheep. He used his power not for his own gain, but he gave himself away on the cross for the sins of all of us, hero or not who failed to live the life that Jesus called us to live. This is what the Bible's about. This is what life is about. It's not about us. It's not about... David's thinking, Oh God, I'm a man after your own heart. You didn't give me this woman. Why is all these bad things happening? Everything happens for a reason. But check this. A lot of times that reason is because we're stupid. We're sinful. We go against the word of God. That's why these bad things happen. It's not about David. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about our church. It's not about, it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. It always has been from eternity past. It always will be when all else fades, when heroes fall, when heroes fail you, when heroes screw up. His glory will go beyond all fame because it has always been about Jesus. And it will never fail to be because he is the one, he's the true hero, and is the only one who will never fail you. Now, you need to put your hope, you need to put your trust, you need to put your faith in him and follow him because it's all for him. It's all about him. Let's pray. Guys, this is about Jesus. For us to think that this worship service is about my feelings, what I can get out of it. That's not of primary importance. Primary importance is we're here for Jesus, to celebrate Him, to honor Him, to love Him, to sing of all He's done. And as we do that, Because that's what we were made to do. Because He's the hero that we were made to worship. When we worship Him, that's when we receive the blessing. It's a byproduct. But when we come thinking, this is all for me, you never get it. You never get it. You never get the blessing. You never get the pleasure. Because pleasure is always a byproduct of putting Christ first, of worshiping Him. Always, always is. Pleasure, joy, fulfillment is a byproduct of seeking Christ first. It's not the result of seeking those things in and of themselves. So will you heed the warnings from David's life? Have you thought you were above the law? Do you think you're above the law? Do you think the rules don't apply to you? They need it, but not me. I'm doing okay. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right without praying. I'm doing right without reading the word. I'm doing all right living in my secret sin. I've gotten away with it. That's for them, not for me check yourself my friends be careful that you don't bankrupt your heart of all that God has for you are you finding yourself in places you shouldn't be with people you shouldn't be with with things you shouldn't be doing and there's no one to call you out on it there's no accountability in your life What's the question that you don't want people asking you today? Whatever that question is, that's where your warning lies. It's the thing you're most defensive about that can be the most destructive in your life. Does your heart become hardened to the beauty of what Jesus has done, to the wonder of the gospel? Does your heart become hardened to sin? No longer it's a struggle against sin. I just lay down and give myself into it now. Is that your life? Be careful. Check yourself. Do you use others for your own gain? Whereas once you used to just give yourself away to love them, to serve them. Now do you simply seek to take from them? If you do, be careful. Be careful. The grace of God is this, that Jesus Christ is the hero when we put our faith in him and he changes us from the inside out. And he alone can do that. He will come down. He did come down to rescue you. He has come down and he will continue to do that. It's a love that will not let you go. And it's here today and it's shaking you through the word of God so that you will listen so that you can be saved from yourself and saved from your sin. Do you hear the word of love? Do you respond in repentance and in surrender? Let's pray for a minute right now. Let's get out of danger he can rescue. He's here to do that. Let's get out of danger. Let's heed the warning now. Let's listen to his word. Let's go. Let's go to those places of prayer. Repent and turn away from sin to Jesus. devil's lie that it's different with you don't believe the lie that you can get away and be okay don't believe the lie that you can cuddle with this sin and it won't hurt you don't believe the lie that it's just between you and someone else and don't believe the lies it's come to the light let jesus rescue us it is abundant love Jesus, give us a humility to hear this word personally. Each of us to hear this word personally. At the same time, give us as a church ears to hear this word to us. Maybe we feel like because of good things that you're doing in us that We don't need to do the things we used to do. Have mercy on us and forgive us and cleanse us. We turn away from that lie and turn towards grace. You oppose prideful people, but you give grace. when We humble ourselves before you and express our desperate need for you. Father, we thank you that you didn't come to people who had it all together. You sent your son Jesus to come in love, to a world that was broken, that deeply, desperately needed you. And we got into your family because we acknowledged our need for you. That need doesn't disappear because we're yours. That need actually continues to intensify. We find ourselves continually needing you, continually needing to be saved, not only from our badness, but from feelings of goodness that think we don't need you anymore. Lord, that you would have mercy and that you would cleanse us renew, revive, restore your work in us, come down, rescue us from ourselves, from our selves, from our sin, from our self-delusion, our deception, help us to rise up in wholehearted dependence, surrender to you, Lord, we need you, help us, we confess these things as our declaration of trust in you, in Jesus' name we pray.